Welcome to Crossing the Enterprise Chasm, a podcast about software startups and their journey moving up market to serving enterprise customers. I'm your host, Michael Greenwich. I'm the founder of WorkOS, which is a platform that helps developers quickly ship common enterprise features like single sign-off. On this podcast, you'll hear directly from founders, product leaders, and early stage operators who have navigated building great products for enterprise customers. In every episode, you'll find strategies, tactics, and real world advice for ways to make your app enterprise ready and take your business to the next level. Today, I'm joined by Elon Frank, VP of Enterprise Product at Slack. Slack is, of course, used by lots of small and medium-sized companies, but over the last several years, the product has also been adopted by very large organizations like Walmart, Nike, News Corp, and IBM. Along the way, this meant Slack needed to become enterprise-ready and build lots of new features and functionality for IT admins. We're going to dig into all this and more and talk about the ways Slack was able to move up market and cross the enterprise chasm. Elon, let's get started by going back in time. Tell us about back when you joined Slack five years ago. What was the state of the enterprise business and product for those customers? Yeah, it's actually been almost six years. It's crazy. Time really flies by. So in early 2016, when I joined, we had enterprise customers, but for the most part, there were 20 people that were called account managers. And we were taking orders, you know, if the people didn't want to pay with a credit card, if there were large organizations and they wanted to have some type of enterprise-wide license agreement, those 20 people would basically take down their information and really kind of work with them to structure some type of invoicing rather than credit card transaction. But that was kind of the state of our enterprise world. We really didn't have a sales team, certainly not a customer success team. And the product itself was also very immature from an enterprise perspective. The only thing that we had at that time from what we call enterprise features was SSO. That was the first feature that we developed, and that was about all we had at that point. Was that developed before you joined? Were you part of that, the SSO feature? It was. The SSO feature was developed just before I joined. That's right. In 2015, we launched SSO. Do you remember what folks were asking for at that time? You only had SSO. The buying motion was obviously, like, this is kind of an entire separate thing is sales maturity around selling enterprise. Mm -hmm. But from a product functionality perspective, what were folks asking for? Where was Slack maybe not up to par from there, what they needed? Quite a few things. I mean, the first thing, which doesn't necessarily relate to WorkOS, but Slack in general is just reliability. I don't know if anyone has read any articles about 2015 in Slack, but if you had a team of you know larger than 5,000 or so people, Slack was not the most reliable platform to be on at that point. So that's the first thing is customers like IBM came to us and said, okay, we can't even hit 5,000 people. How are we going to get 400,000 people on this thing? So that was the one of our main focuses initially on the enterprise side is, okay, how do we actually re-architect Slack? Because it was built as a team tool, you know, for a hundred people. The initial pitch deck was there's going to be teams of a hundred. And if you want more than that, you go create another team. But now how do we scale that from that to 400,000 people at IBM all in one channel together for announcements or anything like that? So scalability was job one initially. And then I joke that in 2016, I said the word table stakes or heard it more than any other time in my career. You know, the table stakes feature from enterprise were obviously expanding some of the SSO, so supporting other IDPs. We had to support skim for provisioning and deprovisioning. So that was something that we developed in 2016 so that you can do that. We had to do all kinds of things around compliance. So everything from e-discovery to DLP data protection at data exports, anything like that was basically 2016. And that's when we started really that effort. 
And then finally, some administration features, basic, you know, administration features around users, permissions, you know, things like that. Those were kind of the table stakes features that people wanted that first year. How did you build intuition to know what to build here? Or not even intuition, but how did you actually know what to build? Was it coming from the sales team? You connecting with IT? Kind of walk us through, you know, I think many people listening are either at that similar spot or about to be at that spot. How do you assess what features to build or how did you build your roadmap around that? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of ways. Certainly we had a product gaps type of process where salespeople and SEs could report what they're hearing as showstoppers, you know, from the field. And so we wanted to pay attention to that. But we actually, from a product perspective, we actually did our own TAM analysis and looked at the market and looked at these features around compliance and security as ways to really unlock TAM. And so the basic ones were basically, okay, we're at you know, multiple organizations, almost any public organization is going to need the features that I just spoke about, you know, from SSO to provisioning and deprovisioning specifically some type of, you know, device management to the ability to manage devices. And so there's like a basic level of kind of Maslow's hierarchy that you just need to meet in order to really be taken seriously in the enterprise. And then there are other features that you have to be careful about because they sound enterprisey but they really are pertaining to a specific geography or a specific industry. And those are the ones that you have to be careful not to rush off and do right away. I would hold those off into later years. So for example, we have a lot of requirements around FINRA and financial services regulation around compliance, data archiving, legal holds, you know, different types of formats of data export, which you know, financial services companies like Goldman Sachs will say this is a must have. And they're probably right. It is a must have, but it is a must have for the financial services industry, not for every single organization. So you have to really think, what is this going to open up for me as an organization? Is this, are we ready to take on financial services or healthcare? The same thing with healthcare. I advise the companies that I work with to look at, you know, obviously high tech first, then after that, media companies, you know, like the Netflix's. HBOs, CBS, Hulu, Disney, these are going to be, you know, companies that are usually forward looking. Then, you know, the professional services type, you know, organizations or organizations that provide a service. And only fourth is financial services. So the Capital Ones, American Expresses, they're going to be forward looking for financial services, but they're not forward looking compared to, you know, all of the other companies that, you know, are going to come before it on those other industries. Is that kind of just TAM analysis as you're talking through that? Yeah. Like those companies? Okay. Took a look at basically our TAM knowledge workers inside financial services. How big is that in the US? Because US financial services is going to be very different from European, going to be very different from, you know, APAC. And so thinking about the different types of data residency and things like that, that are much more important in APAC than they are here in the US, maybe because most data centers are already in the US, but also from a regulatory perspective, that's not something that we typically hear. But these are different features that you need as you kind of approach these different geographies and different industries. I wanted to pack something you said about the skim integration being kind of the one that you guys built relatively soon after SSO. What did that add to Slack? Kind of what did you see in terms of the product changes or the value that that brought to Slack as a product? Well, a couple of things. I mean, provisioning is obviously one of the first things that people do with your software. They just bought your software and now they're ready to set it up. And if you make provisioning difficult, that's a first bad experience. So that's not a good thing. And then from a security perspective, any company that is, you know, larger than, let's say, 200 or so 
is going to want deprovisioning so that when the person leaves the company, it could be automatically deprovisioned. That person could be automatically deprovisioned and everything, you know, immediately basically gets locked down for that individual. Those are two extremely important features. Beyond that, we certainly allowed you to integrate into profile fields and a lot of customers use that. The way that they've used that initially, actually, in 2017 was actually for deployment analysis. So large enterprise corporation, they just spent a whole bunch of money with your tool and they've rolled it out. And Sue Smith, who leads you know, your tool at the company is gonna be asked, how is this working? You know, How is Slack? Has it been adopted? Which you know, departments are using it? And the easier you make it for Sue to export that information and be able to analyze that information, the easier your renewals are gonna be. And so we early on allowed for the skim extraction and made actually department and cost center, two fields that were defaulted so that you can actually get those. If they exist in your IDP, we'll just automatically bring those in. I've heard this generally called like reporting as an admin feature. They're like, we want yeah. reporting. And it's like, well, who's using it? How much are they using it? Yeah, I know that you're not going to ask questions too much about the reporting side, but if I can just give two cents on that, I wouldn't overinvest in reporting. But what I call, there's three levels of reporting, and I don't want to get into that right now because it'll take us on a tangent. But the first level is what I call deployment analytics, which is, is the deployment successful? Those are pretty simple. It's really, you know, what department is using it? How much are people using it? You know, kind of what general benefit are they getting from this? That's where you want to invest first and you want to do as little as possible. So even if you have just an API or a data export or a CSV export or something like that, so they can open it up in Power BI or Tableau or anything like that, you've already basically checked the box for most of your customers. I wouldn't go off and build something too fancy with custom visualizations and all that type of stuff right away. You know, what's funny is I've seen something very similar with group management for directory sync. So you can build, you know, some companies go down the path of building this whole sophisticated group membership, drag and drop different tagging or different groups of users. And then you actually roll it out to IT and they say, hey, we don't want any of that. We just want to plug it into the existing tools. We already have an active directory. Same thing with the BI tool. 100%, 100%. Group management, especially in large organizations, I would say, let's say, you know, a thousand employees, maybe, you know, 5,000 employees and above in that range. When you start getting into what we call large enterprise, they're going to have their own tool. They already have it. They don't want to create their own custom groups inside. We have a feature called user groups, which, you know, does not get used that extensively in large organizations, basically because it's an ad hoc in Slack user group type of definition that people really don't want to do. They want to map their existing groups. I guess, despite the incremental product value of that, it doesn't outweigh the kind of operational overhead of needing to manage that multiple places. That's right. That's right. There is syncing of groups and then there is using groups. And so I think that I would start with what are groups going to be used for and where are they most important? Like, for example, this is only seven years later but we are now starting to offer role-based permissioning around groups so that you can take a group of people and give them a specific role like channel creators. Maybe we should have done that a little bit sooner, but if I had to do it over again, I would hold off on it again versus the ACLs form of group where we map a group to a channel, which is something that we did very early on. I know you guys released a blog post. I think it was earlier this year about the new RBAC system and how you built that and I actually talked to the engineer and it sounds like it was quite the technical undertaking to do it too. <laughs> I knew what you needed to do for a long time, but it was just a very big challenge. Yeah, I will take my statement back in one way, which is that 
if you are brand new and just starting a brand new <laughs> company and you can create an RBAC system rather than a flat set of permissions that map directly to end users, I would do that because yeah. doing it on day one is probably way, way cheaper than going back and taking every permission that's been built in Slack over seven years and then mapping it back to an RBAC right. system. At scale, yeah, unraveling yeah. the ball of twine. Let's go back to the IT admin. I want to ask about this more. So, you know, early on, you join Slack. First few months there, you're hearing about sales objections. You're like, what deals are we losing? Building that spreadsheet of TAM opportunity. You know, Slack, as I remember it, you know, the primary user wasn't IT admins. You know, in terms of the product team thinking about who we're building for, you know, I remember it was like kind of small teams using it and that end user delight. Here you have this other stakeholder coming in, this other person, IT admin, that the team might not have been familiar with and not really known. I see this a lot with startups, you know, they're very familiar with their end user, but this IT persona they kind of haven't, you know, interacted yeah. with. How did Slack like build empathy with that group or just understanding, how did you connect with them? It's a very different audience, just if you could talk through that. 100%. So I talk a lot about this in my fictitious blog post that I haven't written about, you know, in enterprise, you have a chooser and a user. And a lot of people who come from consumer world and then kind of start their first enterprise company really are focused on the end user and what is that end user experience. And that's great. And that's really super important. Probably more important, I say to many people, you know, that's way more important in the first year, first two years while you're looking for product market fit than anything on the enterprise side. But after that, you know, you really got to focus on that chooser because that is the person who realistically is actually going to make the buying decision. That's the person who's going to be accountable to the success of your software. It's not going to be the end users. And so the way we approach them is with the same type of empathy that we approached the users. So I set a customer advisory board, a cab, as one of the first things that I did at Slack. But unlike other customer advisory boards for enterprise software, what I wanted is people that are really close to the software. A lot of times what you do is the actual person who writes the check, that's the person that you invite to the cab. A lot of times that's someone who is maybe the VP of infrastructure, the person who is like really like next up in line to the CIO or maybe even the CIO him or herself. That is not the right person, in my opinion, to invite to the camp. What I wanted was the lowest level person that is not an end user, basically. The person who really feels the pain of deploying Slack at a large organization. That's their job. And anything that we do that doesn't help them, you know, it hurts or they feel it the most. And we listened. We brought them in physically pre-pandemic. We brought them into the office for an entire day with a dinner at the end and really listen to them. What were their pain points? What was going well? What was not going well? And it was a very therapeutic conversation. This was not a salesy conversation. In fact, I advise um, several companies. There was one company I was just advising on a cab and the salespeople, the head of sales and several other salespeople wanted to attend the cab. And I told them, absolutely not. Like salespeople are not even invited to the cab. And there's nothing against salespeople. I love salespeople. But the reason why is I don't want it to feel salesy. When these account managers come into the room, I don't want the person they're associating with, you know, basically selling to them even in the room. I want this to be a frank conversation where we really talk about what is happening with the software and what we can do, you know, better. And then the other thing that's really important to CAB, this obviously goes without saying, is following up. So we wrote down everything that they asked for the next time we met. Initially, it was every six months we met, we would show them, here are the things that you asked for. We did this many. Some of these other ones are in progress. And some of these other ones, we just decided not to do, frankly. You know, thank you for letting us know, but we decided for whatever reason that we're not going to do it. We're going to focus in another area. But we didn't like just leave them and let them linger or brush them under the rug. 
Speaking back on those first few meetings with the customer advisory board, is there anything that stands out that was surprising to hear or maybe unexpected, either something you expected them to say and they didn't or counterpoint where they're like, we really got to have this. And you're like, wow, I would have never imagined. Yeah, you and I talked about this several times, I think, actually, in our meetings. We normally didn't allow customers in that weren't actually already users of Slack. This was one customer that we allowed in that was very, very bought into Slack and wanted Slack throughout their entire organization. They're a very, very large organization that you would definitely know of, but they needed EKM, Enterprise Key Management, in order to roll out Slack. That was their standard, and they just could not roll it out without it. I mean, we tried all kinds of things. We have security policies. Look at how we rotate our own keys and all that stuff. All that stuff didn't work. They needed EKM. At lunchtime, this person basically went to other people who were on the cab and convinced them that EKM was the most important thing, even though these were already existing customers. And at the end of the day, when we did our ranking, it was almost like a mob of like, you know, chanting EKM, EKM, EKM. And that was really the beginning of when I started to change my mind on it. Initially, I thought, this is a silly thing that people are asking for, but eventually they'll drop it and, you know, it'll be fine and they'll use Slack without it. But at that point, really, I started changing my opinion on it and started going towards really investigating realistically what it would cost us to put in the product. And eventually, about a year later, we had released it. And that was a legitimate feature need. It wasn't just a mob with the pitchforks. <laughs> if it was, a, if it was <laughs> not a legitimate feature need, I would hope that I would yeah. not be swayed by just the mob. But they made a compelling argument. Well, it's funny, you know, seeing Slack having built EKM and Quip did it as well. Now you're part of the same kind of Salesforce family at Slack. It does seem to be like a feature that's on the horizon for a lot of other SaaS companies. Eventually, eventually. Eventually. It's not the first thing that I would build. Again, the security features, reliability, number one. You just cannot ship software if it's not reliable. And by that, I mean reliable and scalable beyond what your customers can do right now. Not scalable beyond, you know, well beyond that. You know, if your customers are 10,000 users, don't build a million, but it has to be able to. That's number one. Number two is definitely the security table stakes. Number three, compliance to start getting into other industries, other geographies. Number four is where I would get into EKM. And number five, admin features. That's how I would rate those enterprise features basically any day for almost every company. I think when I've seen EKM, it's in that realm of not even seven-figure deals, like eight-figure deals really is what you're talking, like pretty large dollar numbers that get blocked by it. That's right. That's right. It has a significant halo effect. I don't think I'm allowed to say exactly how much of Slack Enterprise is driven by EKM, but let's just say they were right. That cap was right. It's had a significant halo effect. I don't know how many of the people that have purchased it We sell it separately, but more importantly, it's part of Enterprise Grid. And so like you said, it's those large deals where it's part of those large deals and it enables those large deals. I don't know how many people of those are showstoppers. They would just not come onto Slack. But certainly the fact that we have it is just a great, you know, kind of proof point of the enterprise focus that we have at Slack. That was the feature, to be precise, that meant Slack didn't have to do on-prem also, right? That's right. EKM is Enterprise Key Management. That's when customers can bring their own key and encrypt the data that you store for them with their key so that your engineers can't go and, and just decrypt it, basically. And you're right. You're completely right, Michael. That Two big companies that really push for EKM, they typically deploy only on-premise. And this was the feature that allowed them to say, okay, we for both of them, Slack was one of their first SaaS tools that they deployed in the cloud. Well, thank you for paving the way for the rest of us. Um, <laughs> I also want to ask about team structure. So, you know, as Slack evolved in those early days, just SSO, 
probably didn't have a whole enterprise product team, enterprise engineering focus. How did the team evolve? I want to hear about this from not just kind of engineering and product, but also kind of like marketing, how you thought about that and messaging. You know, the story around Slack Enterprise is a little bit different than the story around the more consumer product-led growth side of Slack. Yeah. From a team structure, first of all, when I joined, we had 100 engineers and we had 10 people that we had basically amassed inside Enterprise. And now we have about a thousand in PDE in product design and engineering and about a hundred on enterprise roughly. We run at around 10%, you know, 15% at times we scaled out enterprise grid in 2017, but roughly there. And I think that that's the right investment level for something like enterprise in most companies, most SaaS companies. From a marketing perspective or go-to-market perspective, I think that the most important thing is just to really be connected to the sales organization. So I will have to drop off exactly at the top of the hour because I'm going to a customer event, for example. I still remain very, very engaged with customers to this day. And I think that that's something that's really important. So as you think about enterprise and getting an enterprise, it's more of a customer visit, you know, in the old sense, you can stay at home now, but it's the customer visit type of go-to-market. And it's important to have an enterprise leader, I think, that takes that on, can connect with customers, can get that feedback and bring it back to the team but also be able to really kind of co-sell with the sales team because it is a team effort. I've heard in the past also that you guys would, you know, get on planes, go to customers, go sit down with them, actually show up at their office and old school style. Old school style. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. That's right. Luckily, you know, it's not so old school. I didn't have to wear a suit other than in Japan, but we definitely used to do that in the pre-pandemic days. So we have just a few minutes left. I got two more questions for you that I want to dive into. We'll make sure to let you go for um, customer event. Along the way, what did you all choose not to build? I'm curious what didn't make the cut in terms of saying, oh, that's actually not a need. And similarly, are there any features that you regret building or things that you were like missteps where that calculation was maybe just a little bit off, didn't have the same kind of return on investment that you were expecting in terms of thinking through TAM and impact? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of them is generic. The other one is I think more specific to Slack itself. So the one area that we decided not to build, and I mentioned it in my stack rank, is really a lot of admin features. And those cab meetings were spicy because these are the people that are really feeling the pain. And what they're asking for are features to help them out, you know, to help them manage and govern and, you know, deploy Slack. We provided them, many of them APIs and said, here, you know, you can code around this. If you want to deploy multiple people into a channel, you can do that, but we're not going to give you an interface to very nicely do it. Now we built all those in the last year, but we held out for many, many years. I don't regret that. These were painful conversations to have with customers. I don't regret that because what we were building were what I consider the showstoppers that were not allowing us to break into larger organizations or different industries, you know, mobile security, you know, different type of authentication controls. And so EKM, obviously, that we invested in, IDR, so data residency, we invested in all these, which again, I don't regret, but these were difficult conversations to have with people that you developed a relationship with over years. The second area, the area that I wish we would have invested in more, but this is really more Slack specific, is in Slack Connect. It's another area that I lead now. And I think that it's an area that is just so exciting when you think about Slack, the external connections that I wish from a Slack perspective that we invested more in that area. We are very, very heavy users of Slack Connect as well. I work with us. I know many people on this call also we have shared Slack channels with. If you have any feature requests, I'm sure we have a Slack Connect channel where... Uh, yeah, probably, <laughs> probably have dozens. Yeah. 
Last question for you before we wrap up. What's next for Slack Enterprise? As much as you can talk about kind of where you see stuff going, you obviously were like early to the party with EKM having forecasted that as being a momentous feature. Anything that you can speak to what's next for that? And maybe just wider across the ecosystem as you see it beyond Slack. Yeah, yeah, I can speak to that. I mean, on the enterprise side, which is a side that we're thinking about, again, large organizations or ones that are multinational, it's starting to define the boundaries of Slack beyond just knowledge workers. And so like task workers, retail workers, you know, we're already deployed. I think this has already been talked about, so I'm not spilling anything, but Target is a large organization. They're speaking at Dreamforce right now, but this is already starting to be deployed at stores there. You know, if you go to an Apple store and go look at the Genius Bar, you know, they have Slack behind the counter. So we're starting to do that. And this actually circles nicely back to work OS and security. That is largely a security question. So those employees, for example, don't have email addresses typically because email is too expensive to roll out to those employees. So you have to do authentication that's not email-based, for example. Those employees sometimes have regulations around using your software outside of the store. So you have to have some type of either geolocation or some type of integration into a calendar system so that as soon as their shift ends, they don't have access to it. But this is the area I think that enterprise, is, as we're doing our planning for the next year, is going to focus on next, in addition to uh, more control around device management. Endpoint protection is a really, really big issue for customers. And we no longer can just rely on them to just put, you know, different types of endpoint protection on their laptop. We need to provide them more tools that are built into Slack in order to protect those laptops or mobile devices in case they are hacked into. Any last comments for the SaaS ecosystem advice for founders that might be going through this, you know, Slack circa 2012, <laughs> maybe, you know, we uh, were, 2014. We were... I was fortunate, I should say, that you know we hit product market fit before I came on board. And I think that that's important you know, for anyone kind of going through this right now is to really focus on that product market fit almost exclusively. Like I always tell companies that I advise, don't hire someone like me until you need that person. That's not a good hire that you want to do you know, first day or even potentially in your first year. You really got to focus on that end user and then bring in someone and separate them to focus on the chooser. So that's one of the things that Slack did really well is we almost had two different organizations for product, one focused on the enterprise and one focused on the user. I think that's really sage advice. We often talk about after you get product market fit, then go get enterprise ready. It's kind of the second chapter of your growth and just as important. With that, we can wrap up. Thanks so much for joining. I know you're a busy guy. This is a really fun conversation. Really, really appreciate it. It's uh, always fun to see you. Yeah, likewise. You just listened to Crossing the Enterprise Chasm, a podcast about software startups and their journey moving up market to serving enterprise customers. Want to learn more about becoming enterprise ready? The WorkOS blog is full of tons of articles and guides outlining best practices for adding features like single sign-on, skim provisioning, and more to your app. Also, make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you're first to hear about new episodes with more founders and product leads of fast-growing startups. I'm Michael Greenwich, founder of WorkOS. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.